Today we're talking about the king of all business metrics, customer lifetime value or LTV. LTV is the total expected net profit per customer over the course of its relationship with the business. Companies that deeply understand LTV use that understanding to make informed decisions that drive long-run profitability. Today's guest is Clint Dunn, founder of Wild.ai, an early-stage SaaS company that offers LTV predictions as a service. In our conversation, we talk about the benefits of having strong understanding of LTV at an individual customer level, as well as the challenges companies often encounter trying to develop and operationalize their own LTV predictions. This episode is essential listening for marketers or data professionals who want to directly impact their company's bottom line. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to Still Updating. This show is an open-ended exploration about data, AI, and how modern businesses are using technology to compete in the marketplace. Still Updating is brought to you by Endeavor Labs. By no coincidence, I, Nathan Gould, am both the founder of Endeavor Labs and the host of this podcast. Endeavor Labs is a data and AI-focused consultancy that helps businesses become smarter, faster, and leaner by leveling up their data game. With that said, let's get to the show. And we're live here with, with Clint Dunn. Clint, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk to All you right. today. So, yeah, very excited to chat with you as well. Clint is the founder of Wild.ai. Um, Clint, why don't, you, why don't you give us a quick intro of yourself and, and Wild before we uh, dive into our topics for today? Yeah, so my my background, uh, I'm a data guy. I've worked in a bunch of kind of retail, uh, e-com environments. Uh, previously, was at Afterpay. Before that, I built a data team at an e-commerce company called Hair Story. We did women's hair wash products. Um, and yeah, Wild, we we do customer predictions for retail and e-commerce data teams. So mostly focused on lifetime value and churn, but hopefully other things in in the future. Cool. So. Yeah, I'd love to just start off with like, uh, you know, your your journey to entrepreneurship because I think that uh, gives gives people a bit more context to understand, you know, what what you're doing, why you're working on solving the problem that you're you're solving in the first place. So, yeah, tell tell us a little bit about your your career and your sort of journey to both having the the seed of the idea to start wild and also like how you ended up kind of taking the leap to to start start building it. Yeah, I think forever as long as i can remember i've wanted to start a company um and to kind of set myself up for that i just was in as many startups as possible i was the first employee at one startup i think at hair story i, I might have been employee like 15 or something um i went to afterpay it was really cool to see what a larger company uh, was doing i, I must have been employee 2000 something there and so getting that kind of like full gambit of understanding of how companies operate was i think actually really essential the the kind of level of responsibility and trust that you have to be given in a startup environment lends itself pretty well to to starting your own thing later and i think for me personally like i was starting to see a lot of the same problems between all these brands from the data side and uh once you see that you can kind of start to guess that it's it's a larger problem and that frustration of kind of doing the same data science projects was was what i was seeing so every time i went to a new company, they had kind of the same questions uh, around what their customers were going to do and how they were going to behave and what products they should recommend and things like that. And so that frustration eventually grew large enough that I wanted to work on it full time and, and try and solve it for as many companies as possible. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, people in the data world can relate to that. Uh, it's like every every company has a lot of the same questions 
but the data is in like a bit of a different shape and they're different stakeholders and different terminology, but you're kind of doing the same thing in a lot of different contexts. So yeah. Honestly, that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you because I think it's just just super interesting to to build uh, a company that tries to abstract that away and make make data science more repeatable. So I want to get into that theme. Uh, but first, can you tell us like how did you how did you take the leap to starting Wild and how how are you approaching it? Because I know we talked like a year ago, and you were you were mm-hmm. just getting started and also deciding whether to raise money or not. Um, a lot's happened since then. So, so what, what is the, what has the journey been? Journey's been awesome. Yeah. Uh, we, we did speak about a year ago and a lot has changed the, uh, kind of early days. Uh, I mean, I just, I just left my job at wild, uh, or sorry, at, uh, Afterpay and started building right away. And so I, uh, I actually moved in with my parents in Kansas city for like three months I went in what I call monk mode. Uh, so I was just, you know, working day and night, lifting weights and eating uh, was pretty much it. But I got a first like kind of development partner in the first six weeks. And so they were able to kind of help me build and, and decide what the product would kind of look like in those early days. And yeah, from there, I came back to, to New York and got a couple more customers and have been just kind of growing it through then. It's, it's obviously been like a tough a year in the direct-to-consumer space uh, where a lot of our customers are. But because we're focused on that profitability end, uh, we're, we're kind of on messaging for a lot of these folks. We're, we're, that profitability is like top of mind right now. And, and people are trying to optimize more on the retention side than they are, I think, on the, the acquisition side. So uh, we've had like some good success. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been a ton of fun in building so okay. far. Cool, yeah. The, the focus on... Um profitability this year is very palpable and I feel like it does make it kind of selling stuff is harder like I think it makes it a fun time to be kind of a data a data person because you're often in a position to be responsible for figuring out what the right answer is and often the driver of that is profitability so that's cool so are, are you are, how, yeah. how about the the fundraising side of things I think you were you're thinking of raising but now it seems like you're on a more of a bootstrapping trajectory um, is that is that the plan was there a a change of heart at some point? Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I don't think my mind's ever made up on that. I, I think where I've landed, we've been bootstrapping for the last year and haven't taken any money. It's hard to build a company regardless of whether it's venture-backed or uh, bootstrapped. And I think the, the problems that you run into are very different. But yeah, like I'm, you know, I'm still open to raising at some point. It makes a lot of sense for what we want to build. It's a highly complex product, but um, we've also had a lot of success boot, bootstrapping so far. So both... I think are viable and, and make sense. Uh, yeah, it, 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 there's no one size fits all for this stuff. Cool. Um, so let's yeah, let's talk a little bit more about kind of the the product. Like I'd love to understand. Um, I mean, I understand a little bit, but you know, your your later your latest thinking on you know how what problems are out there um, in the customer analytics world uh, that are worth kind of you know. What, what 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 do companies struggle with? What's what's kind of like the pain point, and what pieces of that can be kind of generalized into um, a sort of a point solution? And by the way, I think uh, we haven't actually said like a hundred percent how how wild works, so maybe we can get into that a bit uh, too. Yeah, sure. I, I can start with how we work. So we we sit on top of uh, team data teams data warehouse, uh, and we suck up data from their data warehouse. We do a bunch of predictions and modeling, and then we actually just write that data straight back to their warehouse. So the idea here is that we're like highly transparent, that we're working in their 
kind of workflows, right? Most data teams are working in SQL and in their warehouses anyway. And so we're just integrating deeply into their, uh, their existing infrastructure, which, you know, I have some hypotheses on, but I, I think that's kind of the way things are going to go uh, in terms of data apps and, and data architecture in the future. I think there are too many companies out there who have built uh, tools that expect you to completely change your workflow. And that's not what data teams want. And so that's kind of like, background and philosophy on our on our building style but the general pain i talk to every data scientist about is exactly what we were speaking about a minute ago which is you go to a new company and you do the same like six projects for the first year and a half and then maybe after a year and a half you get to work on something that's interesting and differentiated and that you haven't worked on before but it really is kind of like a rinse and repeat kind of 90 percent of those projects are, are pretty similar so we're trying to solve that. And most data scientists are quite happy uh, that we want to solve that because they want to work on new and interesting things. They're, they're generally curious people. So yeah, like a lot of the inputs are the same for LTV modeling, for example, um, b- between companies. The outputs are pretty similar. I think one thing where we've failed as data folks so far is a lot of these predictions have been not very actionable. And so we'll kind of give these like hoity-toity like insights or takeaways or something like that. And we're not actually deeply integrating into other people's workflows. And so I think kind of what we need to think about for the next three years or so is how do we go from here's a prediction about a customer's LTV into, okay, here's what we're actually going to do with it. And building that in a scalable way is, is, is going to be the next kind of big task. That makes sense. So what, what are we going to do with it? I mean, I think uh, there's probably... People listening, maybe who are, you know, uh, at a at, at working for brands who are somewhere along the maturity curve of you know doing doing LTV prediction and you know maybe doing it well or not so well. So how do how do you kind of see the that opportunity to do like what what does doing LTV prediction well look like when uh, companies yeah. are doing it right, both in terms of like their the own analytical practices and also how they're using that that result. Yeah, so I think maturity curve is like the exact way to think about this. There's for for a lot of the smaller brands, the finance team owns LTV, and you know it's typically like some calculation that looks generally like total number of customers times some kind of smoothed out retention curve times average order value, and that that gives you like this aggregate cohort level uh, lifetime value, uh, and that 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 works for planning purposes for a lot of brands. Uh, now what we're seeing is as brands are able to personalize messaging a little bit more, profitability is getting more important. They want to actually drive profitability at the customer level. And so that's that's where a tool like Wild comes in. Uh, we're able to actually predict the individual customer level's LTV. And we also do churn probability. So you kind of know when they're likely to come back or not. And so you can make all the, so those timeliness decisions. Um, and so I think we're a little bit higher up on that maturity curve where we're able to actually help you drive action. And, and you know, us as a product, we, we can integrate into your kind of top line growth. And yeah, I think that's, I think that's kind of the next step if you're thinking about LTV and it's important to you right now is like, how do we actually integrate it into workflows and drive actions from it? Um, and some examples of those actions might be like specific camp- campaigns to individual users or offers or what are, what are some of the things you've seen kind of yeah. work work well when it comes to using the customer level LTV calculations to drive profitability? So I think there's kind of the, the standard uses, which is, um, you know, you definitely want to show this to your C-suite. It's definitely strategic. 
And then there's the kind of tactical stuff. Uh, a lot of folks will use us for, uh, they'll use our churn predictions and LTV as part of their email marketing, for example. And so they're kind of churned customer you know, win back flows is what these are typically called. They're emails that go out and we're worried about you not coming back. Um, and so they'll trigger those based on, on Wild's um, insights. Uh, if you have the infrastructure, you can scale uh, kind of pricing and, and discounts dynamically based on their, their LTV predictions. Or you can set, you know, if you want to send this to Google Ads retargeting, you can do kind of dynamic bid structures based on their future LTV. I think all these things are uh, super powerful and, and most brands could take advantage of them right now. The there, there's some more interesting and creative ones that I've seen. Uh, we're working with one brand that has retail locations and they did this thing called clienteling. It's basically when a retail associate calls and texts like an individual customer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they used Wild's predictions to identify churning customers. And then their retail associates did this clienteling, reaching out to individual customers who are churning. And it raised average order value by 50%. Oh, wow. I've been talking about this lately and, and I'd love to dive into it a little bit more is like actionability and usability. I think the, the, the quick like two seconds on this and I've been thinking about this most of this week is like marketers have been sold this idea of personalization and as data people, we've been just able to like push more data. You know, we use like a reverse ETL tool. We could like push more data in, but the marketers actually don't end up using it or enjoying it all that much or getting the full use out of it because... Uh, they can't segment things. So like one of our customers uh, is an RV company, uh, RV rental company. And they uh, they know that there's a huge difference in customers who own trucks versus don't. So if you own a truck, you usually get a towed RV. If you don't own a truck, you usually get the kind of like built-in RV. But like building that into your messaging automatically and the kind of content and every email and like paid ad that you're targeting is uh, an impossibility for them. And so I think actually like the next kind of layer of like ML AI stuff is, is going to have to be integrating more deeply into especially marketers' workflows to help make those decisions for them in a scalable way rather than just like dumping data. Yeah, okay. So I'm curious, how, how, do, you, how do you see that fitting in with like, because I know that, you know, when, when you look at different methodologies for kind of having, having marketing teams and data teams kind of be in, be in sync and sort of have a common source of truth, there's the the customer data platform approach and then there's the reverse ETL approach where the customer data platform is like you have something like segment and there's a bunch of other ones where it's like not your warehouse, it's some other system that you're going to have that has the the canonical data about who your customers and users are so that you can, um, mar- marketing can use that data and it usually ends up being the data's, data team's job to kind of make sure the data gets in there properly, but it's like outside of their their sphere. Then there's the the CDP approach. Sorry, the, the the reverse ETL approach where data goes into the warehouse and then you push it back out to to marketing tools. So I'm curious how how yeah. do you see? Actually, is there is there one of those two worlds where Wild currently like fits in better? Um, to start start there. Yeah, I think I think we fit in better with that composable uh, kind of idea, the the reverse ETL idea. It's uh, yeah. The, I, I think the future is going to be a lot more data coming into the warehouse and data teams are going to be responsible for more of that data, but it's going to be tough to make sense of all of it. It's, I've already talked to a bunch of companies who are like, we have more data than we know we, we know what to do with. Uh, and so actually getting some insights out of it and actioning on it is, is I think, going to be one of the big, big areas of focus uh, now that if it does take off. And what, what is it 
what is it that actually gets in the way of marketing teams who want to do the the segmentation that you that you mentioned? Yeah, I just got off the phone with a marketer actually who was who was talking about this, um, and it's a it's a human capital limitation. So you know they. Um, for this, this brand sold shoes and they were like, you know, we know kind of if you buy this shoe with this color, like this is likely to be your next purchase. Or if you look at this thing on the site, but there are these kind of crevices and niche use cases and, and journeys that they have. And it just is not going to be worth their time to build new email flows and triggers off of that because, you know, you're just continuing to fragment your customer base, but the cost of building an email is the same, maybe even higher every time you start to do that. So yeah, they, they have a huge kind of scalability problem that we probably should be deeper involved with as, you know, kind of building software basically internal to companies is what data teams do. And, and so probably should solve some of those human capital issues with our, our kind of capital approach. Uh, yeah, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but that, that seems to be what we need yeah, to do. That's interesting. What are your thoughts on recommendation systems and how that fits into your vision? Because as as you're describing that marketing challenge, I was thinking, like, you know, the more the more thinly you're slicing your your audience to target specific messages or offers, like, the closer you are to just essentially having a recommendation system. So, at what point does that, you know, do you kind of just think of it that way? And you know, are, are, do you have do you have that sort of uh, offering in your in your long term vision as well? Yeah, I think similar. I, th- I think we want to orchestrate a lot of the customer interaction, and you know, that's not just in marketing. It's a, it's in customer service, right? Like, what? How do you do? You accept a return? Do you accept? Uh, you know, do you give them free shipping? Do you give them a discount for the next order? Like, all of these things are uh, huge customer decisions that we probably could be a lot more uh, sophisticated at in the edge cases. Uh, but again, we're just not actually driving decisions in a, in a really automated fashion. If we start to kind of build this holistic understanding of who the customer is and what they're going to do, so you know, we know what products they want, we know what kind of incentivization they want to purchase again, uh, we know what kind of pricing is going to entice them, uh, we know when we should be emailing them and how the segments should be built out. Once we have that kind of holistic 360 understanding, uh, we can start to actually build a lot of the content um, around that customer. And so, you know, going back to these RVs, like we know, you know, when to send them an, an email, how it's going to be most effective, which RV they're going to want to see and at what pricing is going to entice them. I think that's kind of the holy grail for all of this. Whereas now we're kind of just, you know, like trying to build some segments and then, saying have fun uh and it's a nightmare for everyone involved and and we just have no sophistication around segmentation i think personalization as a marketing concept has been a little bit of a it's it's been missed i think the last few years i I don't think we've really hit it in in a meaningful way and i'm not sure it's exactly the crm's fault or if it's exactly like data team's fault but it, it seems that we've really missed each other somewhere along the way it's interesting it's uh the orchestra you said the word orchestration for like the 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 long term vision for for wild and like you know actually having wild mm-hmm. orchestrate marketing marketing tasks and that that fe- that feels like solving trying to solve that that problem that you just described right the where you know the the bridge between um the m- marketing need and the data that exists is not actually fully built in a way that allows uh driving action 
So that's cool. Yeah, that that yeah, that's the hope. And I I think I think there's like a real opportunity there. There's it's certainly complex. And I think over the next few years, you know, generative AI and these things are going to be very helpful for that because you can actually start to if we make some leaps and bounds in the next few years, which I think we will, you'll be able to generate the content actually in the in the email uh, and that could be huge for a lot of these kind of like niche uh, user journeys and user uh, segments uh, to actually just automate the process of reaching out to them and what we're going to say and when and all these things. So I guess rewinding a bit. So you sort of started with this vision of abstracting away customer analytics and doing, giving kind of like companies a template for, for doing that well. From a sort of product development perspective, I'm curious how your expectations for what that would be like differed from from uh, what actually happened or what actually is happening uh, in particular like to, to what extent do customers actually need the same thing uh, to what extent can you build one solution um, that fits multiple clients and um, how hard is that is that to do it's been hard I think one of the big things is you have to put guardrails up on kind of who your ICP is so I think early on we were uh, talking to a bunch of different companies and a bunch of different spaces at different stages, uh, we've kind of nailed down, you know, we work best with companies who have a data warehouse already. They have some marketing infrastructure, they have some data infrastructure, and they really are just missing this kind of like data science predictive component. Those are those are cases in which we do very, very well. So yeah, we we are also focusing on a vertical. And so it's retail and e-commerce and the kind of inputs and outputs of those are relatively the same. You know, like most of these stores are on Shopify um, or something similar to that. And so you kind of know what data is going to come in. Uh, I think where these things get a lot harder is in B2B environments uh, where you have a bunch of like contract details that might be in Stripe or they might be in some PDF contract somewhere uh, because somebody redlined something. Uh, those kind of scenarios, I think, are a lot harder and something we'd have to tackle later. Uh, but at least with retail and e-com, it's, it's relatively standard coming through. And so it's, uh, and there are a lot of tools out there that kind of do the prediction, or sorry, do the data transformation and things like that for you. So there's Fivetran and Dacity and Source Medium and a few others out there that allow you to have standardized data inputs. And so we're able to kind of sit on top of these systems and know that we're getting clean data and just focus on the, the modeling part, which I, I think is, is kind of the, the next frontier that hasn't been uh, tackled in a holistic way for these brands. How, how does this work in, infrastructure-wise? Are you running your own cloud environment, pulling data in and then pushing it back? Or do you kind of land in, there, in the customer environment and do it all there? So, yeah, we're, we're pulling stuff into our own environment. We don't save any data and we don't need to know who customers are. But... Uh, as I'm sure you saw the other day, Snowflake is is now kind of re-announced their uh, native apps. GCP and, and Databricks are doing similar things where we would be able to run our code and our predictions in a client's environment. And so, yeah, we're definitely we're definitely building into that, and I think that could be huge. Uh, I'm very hopeful. I talk to a lot of especially larger brands who don't want their data leading leaving their environment in any way, and that seems like a no-brainer for us to try and build into. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I, I got I got very interested in the Snowflake uh, data apps ecosystem about 
12 to 14 months ago, back back before it existed. And then I realized yeah. it didn't exist yet. <laughs> um, so, But I'm, I'm excited for it to, to actually come into existence. I might take another look. Yeah, you should. They, they have a good Hello World project. Um, and if you want to check out, Luke Gambrizetti writes great stuff on this. Um, he's got a couple kind of blog posts and tutorials walking through both the conceptual and the, the pragmatic side of it. And so he's, he's been a great resource as, as we've been trying to build these things out. And it's early days, so there's a lot of kind of edgy cases to figure out. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. And like you, was kind of chomping at the bit a year ago and there wasn't a whole lot of content. Yeah, yeah. And now it's getting there. Uh, so actually, I mean, do you want, yeah. do you want to, <laughs> for anyone listening who doesn't know what the, uh, the, the native app uh, solution is, do you want to just give a, give a quick explanation? I would describe a native app as any code that you can run that someone else has written or developed in your own Snowflake environment. That's about my understanding too. So the idea is, you know, okay. right. If, okay. you're, if you're delivering, if, if you have logic and you want to sort of deliver the logic, it's kind of like a, a runtime for your logic in someone else's Snowflake environment, Yeah. which yeah, is like for, for companies who don't want to have data leave their their ecosystem, their cloud. It's sort of like it becomes a new delivery model for, for analytics in general. Which is uh, pr- pretty pretty interesting. I think that is going to have some sort of effect on things in the long run. So cool to hear that you're building on that. Yeah, I've yeah I've also heard like the I've heard from some folks internal to brands that it might change the kind of purchasing decision as well because you know if you bought Wild as a data app, we may not even show up as a line item in your your actual P and L. Like we we would just be basically selling into like Snowflake credits. Um, and so it might actually be easier for data teams to acquire some of these new capabilities because they're just rolling it into their existing uh, Snowflake credit allotment. Yeah. yeah, so that's the, the 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 distribution benefit, which is which is cool for people yeah. p- people building products. I don't know how cool it is for CFOs who want to have control over their <laughs> their data team spend, but we'll we'll see how we'll let them duke it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair <laughs> enough. That's not my. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I do think I do think it opens up an awesome opportunity for data people. Uh, you know, Wild doesn't have a UI, and a large large part of that has been because we built on top of warehouses, and people don't need to come into some workflow that we're building. We're trying to build in the workflow that they're uh, already in. I think native apps are kind of the next step in that. And so I, I think it could be a really cool opportunity uh, for existing data people to even build just like little side projects that they can monetize, uh, you know, productizing things that they're already doing in their existing uh, jobs and then putting it out on the market. It, it could be a really kind of neat opportunity. I don't know if that's Web 3.0 or something like that, <laughs> but uh, it, seems like a, it seems like a big step change in the data yes, world. It's the, the, the cloud data version of Web 3.0. Uh, actually, I, I have I have had that thought before. Did we talk about this last time? I feel like that there are parallels between Web three and the the you know the the Snowflake architecture because you essentially have this like shared data layer where like different parties can write logic against it. So like a company can write logic for their data, but someone else can write write logic for the same data, and it's sort of like it's kind of the way like smart contracts work. Mm. This is a, this is a sort of a very far far flung idea, and not 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 very practical or actionable, but. Uh, the, the parallels have, have occurred to me. I like it though. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that we've had a lot of success with is we we tell people what model we run um, and we tell them how accurate it is. And we like, you know, we do all that holdout testing for them. And so 
uh, all of that is in their warehouse. And so data teams who are skeptical that I'm kind of like, you know, snake oil salesman get to see the proof is in the pudding. And, you know, it's not exactly a smart contract, but we're at least being as transparent as we possibly can. And some people think that's crazy, uh, you know, that like you have to build a bunch of proprietary tech. But I, I think actually what data people want is a lot more assuredness over uh, what they're actually working with. And that is certainly the case when they're dealing with any kind of predictive ML, AI, anything like that. I'm curious how you, without a user interface, are reporting out accuracy for for customers like what is what is the what is the experience from their perspective of like kind of like understanding how well wild is doing in, in for their for their data uh so it's it's a data table that we write back to them so we write you know 10 or 12 data tables uh to their warehouse wherever they tell us you know whatever schema they tell us to write in and so they're able to kind of go in they can plot it you know in any bi tool that they want to they can build any kind of data alert systems if they have kind of like the the observability component in their stack. So yeah, they have full control to do with it what they want, uh, which is quite nice. So uh, yeah, we're, we're not really at the point where we're integrating deeply into the end user being the marketer or the BI developer or the CX. Um, but it's kind of neat because we're just giving data teams all the tools. Data teams are quite good at distributing and interpreting data. And so we're kind of seeing where it flows, and then we'll be able to build around those use yes, cases. Yes, it, do, it does seem like it's very much built for the the data persona. Because, yeah, at least speaking for myself, when I'm when I was when I was running a data team at a company, I definitely whenever whenever there was a new tool that we were considering buying, my, my first criteria were, can I pull data from it, and can I push push data to it from from the warehouse, and like. You know, if it had a reporting UI that some stakeholder was going to use, that was like a downside because I, you know, I would kind of want to like have some some control over how how the data was actually used downstream, and in-app reporting doesn't yeah. have that benefit, which obviously has pros and cons. Like you kind of don't want a data team to be in the middle of all of these of every of every you know stakeholder data interaction, but there, there are pros yeah. and cons. But that that is cool that you're able to deliver a product that's just like pure data in, data out. What do you what do you think the core of that kind of desire is? Uh, like because I hear this a lot and it was my experience too. Like data teams want control. And what do you what do you think the actual core of that is? Oh that's a great question. I I generally I, I think it's often misguided if I'm if I'm being totally honest. It's I think I don't okay. think it's yeah. I th- I think it's it, it often comes out of a desire to be be helpful and kind of be in the mix of things and and have value which you know data teams as as you know like have this uh, it's, a, it's a constant anxiety like are we are we driving enough value because in order to do that <laughs> you actually need people to use products or insights that you're building and then even measuring the impact of of those things is is hard so i do think a lot of it is is just um, you know a sort of a primal urge to be <laughs> to be relevant but then you know a big part of yeah. it is there there are important data sets and I think as within any company there are data sets that if you don't have them in the warehouse, they're going to limit your ability to pursue certain types of projects. So like, you know, probably the most important mm-hmm. thing is customer data. Like if you don't have good data on what your customers are doing in your warehouse, that rules out a whole a whole bunch of things that you can do as a data team. So I think 
yeah, part of it is kind of this mis misguided desire to be like relevant. And then part of it is also, I think, you know, it's increasing optionality. Like the more data sets you have in a warehouse, in your warehouse, the more like projects that you could potentially do. So balancing those is, is hard, but that's, that's my take. How, yeah. how about you? Yeah. I've, I think that's a great take. I've, I've been jokingly calling data, uh, like heads of data, like little tyrants, mm -hmm. um, because I think everything is like with the best of intentions, but it is, it is a little bit of like, you know, a data grab in some ways. Uh, I think similar to you, I think they have an innate desire to be helpful and maybe even an insecurity about it. I do think there's, there's always a desire to want to add more context to, to things too. Um, Cause you're trying to kind of protect against those like future, future stakeholder requests. And so I know when I've seen other predictive tools that didn't integrate with our, our warehouse, uh, I knew that we would want to start segmenting it by a bunch of customer data and seeing what the LTV exam, for example, would be across you know this cohort or this cohort. And if it's not in your warehouse, it's a lot harder to do that pragmatically. So I'm glad you touched on. I think there is kind of an emotional disposition standpoint to it, and then there is a kind of pragmatic standpoint, and, and maybe the the emotional side uh, bends us a little bit too extreme uh, in what how we view the pragmatic yeah, side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I, I lived that. As a as a head of data, and also as someone who's, you know, trying now more like working with heads of data on certain things, so I uh, I see both sides of it. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, it's 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 a hard it's a hard one to navigate. What I think the what I think data heads of data often miss, or data practitioners often miss, is kind of like the long term cost of having data in the warehouse, not just not just storage, but just kind of like the cognitive overhead and. The, the difficulty yeah. that it adds to just maintaining a contract with your stakeholders. Like here, you know, if you have a data, like you, you want to be able to say things about the data that you have. If you, if you can't say things about the data, then, then, then there's, you're not really adding value. So having, having data in the warehouse that you can't really speak to or, you know, actively do things with is kind of like a little bit of dead weight for data teams. Yeah. And I've noticed that also in the kind of, SaaS vendor space, like almost every SaaS tool right now in data is a platform. And the idea is that you can do things with it, but it's, it's all, it's all, except for maybe Fivetran, I would say most of them are about extending your capabilities or, or like kind of giving you superpowers, but very few of them are like, we're just going to take this off your hands. You don't need to think about it anymore. As a head of data, you do have to navigate. What are you going to advocate to build and integrate versus where are you okay with with buying external tools? And I'm sure there's lots of data teams out there that have done some amount of LTV modeling or customer retention prediction in-house to varying degrees of success. Um, and so I think one interesting thing here is like you're you're kind of you're you're a biased party. When you when you come into a, a customer, you know, environment, a customer discussion, you want to convince them to do the, the buy option. But I'm curious if you could like kind of step back, step out of the the sales role for a second and say, okay, you know, what 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 is actually in the best interests of data leaders, and how should they weigh the pros and cons of you know building versus buying a solution like this? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, you know, I, I train, I try and be as unbiased as I can in those conversations. It's usually a DIY versus wild kind of discussion yeah, yeah. when we're in the sales process, and and you know, I I try and outline it as clearly as I can. It if you haven't, if you don't have someone on your team who's done LTV prediction, you know there's 
70 years worth of research on this. And they may ignore the research and go down a very painful path, or they may dig into the research and still go down a painful path. But it, you know, it, this could take anywhere from three to 12 months uh, to, to kind of roll out uh, for your individual company. It usually takes a few more on top of, you know, you've built the model and now you need to like convince stakeholders to use it or you need to repackage it or productize it internally. And so I think the first thing that you have to think about is like, what is our timeline and what is the kind of like opportunity cost? Uh, and I think along the lines of that opportunity cost is uh, LTV is not a, it is foundational to every business. And I would argue probably the most um, most important metric uh, as you think about your business health and your business growth, but it is also undifferentiated. And, and that means uh, there are more unique things that your team could be working on relative to your business. It's probably a better thing for a SaaS vendor to take care of because it's undifferentiated. And data teams usually do not love doing these undifferentiated projects because, again, they're very curious people who want to do new and exciting things. So that, that's usually the kind of decision that we outline for folks. Uh, I don't think it's wrong to do DIY. I think DIY is really useful if you have very unique uh, kind of business dynamics. And, you know, there are a bunch of folks that I talk to where I just, I say like, you know, I don't think we're going to be a good fit because I, I think you have some legitimate business concerns that, that kind of fall outside of uh, how we can model it for you today. And eventually, you know, I think, I think we can incorporate it, but it's difficult. What, what are some examples of that? I'm cur- curious to, to understand a little better. Where, where is the line in the sand that you draw between like, you know, do it, do it yourself versus um, kind of take the cookie cutter approach? If they have a very specific use case or they're in a vertical that I think just doesn't make a ton of sense for us. So like, you know, we don't do kind of subscription, pure subscription-based models uh, super well. And I I actually, brands who are e-commerce subscription only, I actually don't really consider to be subscription companies because it's not a hard and fast contract like your like your cell phone bill is, uh, at the end of the day, the, the customers regularly push off orders. They, they kind of cancel orders without pausing their subscription. And so I think about subscription businesses in terms of uh, grains of analysis. You should be analyzing the subscription grain as, as its kind of own entity. And then you should be also analyzing the transaction grain as its own entity. And the transaction grain is actually where you make money. And so you know, your LTV prediction, in my opinion, in an e-commerce subscription business should be on the transaction grain. There are a lot of folks, though, who want to do kind of, you know, subscription churn analysis and things like that. And that's, that's where their mind goes for churn. And, and, you know, we're going to build that. It's probably the next product we're going to build, but we just don't have it today. And so that's, that's like one example on where we just tell them it's it's probably best to DIY that yourself yeah, for now. That's really interesting. There's sort of the question the question of what are you predicting in the first place. What what are some of the the pitfalls that you find companies running into if if they're doing the DIY thing without say uh, reading having done a full literature review on seventy years of uh, LTV calculation research <laughs> and you know may, maybe that's an opportunity to in, in good faith share some advice for for people in that situation. <laughs> read what other people have done is like the first one I, you know i think one thing that we've seen is i think there's two things one is it's hard to model and it's hard to model because the vast majority of customers in e-commerce environments are uh, unprofitable they're worth nothing in the future and so that becomes its own modeling problem because if 
you know, 90% of your customers aren't worth anything, very simplistic models are going to have 90% accuracy by saying no one's worth anything. And that's not really what you're trying to do when you do these LTV predictions. You're trying to find the customers who are worth nothing, the customers who are worth a little bit, and the very, very val- valuable customers. And you, you really need to understand that, that full curve. And so that's the kind of difficulty, I think, on the modeling side. One thing that's actually interesting is I see companies struggle as much or more with the actionability side than the modeling side. And kind of one of the nice things about us is like we have a data table that's like ready to go to just, you know, left join into your user's table, your, mm-hmm. your kind of reverse ETL prep table. And so that's actually ends up being like one of the big selling points is you, like this data is ready for a marketer to consume and understand. Um, and we'll kind of help you with some playbooks and stories and things like that. But yeah, that, that actually seems to trip people up quite a bit is just like how, do, how and where do we use this data? Cool. Well, Clint, um, this has been a, a fun conversation. Um, I I find what you're doing very very inspiring because I feel like you're kind of taking this kind of pure data data science skill set and kind of business savvy and just as efficiently as possible, sort of turn, turning it into a business. No fluff, no UI. So <laughs> I think that's I think that's very cool and probably inspiring to lots of other data folks out there who have uh, entrepreneurial ambitions. So. I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, wish yeah. wish you yeah. good luck. And uh, I don't know any any parting words. No, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I think tools are getting better. Native apps are going to be a huge unlock. More data folks need to be thinking about you know even small tools that we can get out into the market. Obviously, it feels like the big kind of set pieces are there, but there's plenty of opportunity to, to continue building. Yeah, and if anyone wants to check us out, uh, you can hit me up on LinkedIn, uh, Clint Donham pretty easy to find. Uh, and I do a lot of shouting uh, on that platform. Uh, so definitely connect with me there or, uh, you know, hit us up at wild.ai. Uh, we'll do, we do free audits for people uh, right now. So uh, mention, mention this show and, uh, and we'll, we'll set you up with a free like kind of customer out of it and, and get you a full understanding of what your customer health looks like right now. Cool. Yeah, so we'll put all those links in the show notes. And uh, yeah, I'll second the suggestion to follow Clint on LinkedIn. I've learned a few things about uh, customer LTV just by uh, scroll- scrolling my feed and seeing what he posts. So it's good, good <laughs> stuff. Keep it up. And yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. And that's it for the show. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave a rating on your podcast app of choice. Once again, the show is brought to you by Endeavor Labs, a data and AI-focused consultancy run by yours truly. If you have feedback about the podcast or want to talk data, please reach out, Nathan at EndeavorLabs.co. Once again, that's Nathan at EndeavorLabs.co. I'll see you next time.